Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Jeremiah 29, verse 1, 4 through 8. The word of God speaks to us. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of, the, of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Hey, good morning. Thanks, Nazia. You guys can take a seat. <clears throat> hey, I'm starting a, uh, a campaign to fundraise so that she can read the whole Bible to us. Does that sound good? Would you throw in on that with me? Um, so good to have you all back. I love it. Hey, uh, if we've not met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. It's really good to, to worship with you this morning. I'm excited about our text today. We're in a bit of a strange season for us as a church in the sense that normally we take books of the Bible and we work our way through these books of the Bible verse by verse. That's our preferred method. But lately, we've been doing something different. We've been in a series on our mission as a church. Uh, today's the last Sunday of that series. Next week, <clears throat> we're kicking off a three-week series called Feminine Virtue, coming on the heels of this event that we had over the weekend. Uh, we want to lean in and do some work around Scripture, what it actually means to be a woman, what virtues uh, women should be cultivating, how God has wired women to be, the, the unique blessing and gift that they are to the world. So we're going to do that on Sundays. That's going to be really fun. Then we're going to go into a series on grace uh, three or four week series on grace, which takes us to Easter, and then we'll be in a book of the Bible. So it's just a different season for us, but we're excited about it. So, um, hey, a couple of things before we jump in real briefly that I want to give you an update on. The first is thank you guys so much for all the response to joining our teams. We've talked about this the last two weeks, and we really were asking for 30 people to jump in and join our teams. There's a variety of ways that you can serve on Sundays, and there's a lot of need that we have there. So thanks for the response. And all I want to say is for those of you who signed up to serve, just help us now by finishing the last 10 or 20%. Just be responsive. So our team's going to be reaching out to you. They'll be calling, texting, emailing, doing literally anything to get your attention. So uh, if, if you'll just be responsive to that, that will help us a lot so that we can start the onboarding process with you. Um, so thanks, thanks for jumping in. Uh, the other thing that I want to kind of invite you into, and I don't know if one of you will do this or many of you, I don't know, but a few of us, we're going to be reading through the whole Bible in 40 days during Lent. Uh, if you've never done that, it's super bizarre. It's crazy. It's awesome. It's so fascinating how much you actually pick up when you read the Bible that rapidly and that fast. So we've got a Bible reading plan that has 
a way to read from Lent starting on Ash Wednesday, which is this Wednesday night. Hope you're all there this Wednesday night for Ash Wednesday. And then starting that day all the way to Easter, we have a 40-day Bible reading plan. So that's going to be available, I think, in the back. We also have digital copies. If you email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com, we'll send you that. We just want to invite you in. Read the Bible with us in 40 days. Uh, some of you are like, yes, then I don't have to read the Bible for the rest of the year. I, I don't know that it works that way, but if you want to do that, that's fine, right? So 40 days, we're going to do it. Sound good? Yes, lots of woos today. I love it. You guys got some coffee this morning. All right, let me pray for us, and we will jump into our text. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to worship you, to be recalibrated to this true story. Thank you that we are sons and daughters, not based on our effort, not based on our morality, not based on our good works, not based on what we've done, but based on you and your love and what you've done for us. So today we receive your grace again. Today we receive your authoritative word. And I pray that you would shape us. I pray that you would meet us. I pray for my friends that are here today and are not following you, don't know where they stand with you. God, would you speak to them? Would you move in their heart? Would you give them love for Jesus today? We love you. We, we pray that you would shape us into a church that in the right ways seeks the welfare, the blessing, the shalom of our city. And for the ways that we don't do that, forgive us for the ways that we have a, a vision that needs correcting. Correct us today. Pray these things in your name. Amen. If you were to visit our website right now, our church website, uh, one of the things that you would see first in big, bold letters is the phrase, a church for the city. A church for the city. If you pulled into our parking lot and noticed our sign, it says frontline, and then below it, a church for the city. What is that all about? What does that mean? Well, it's describing the type of posture that Frontline Church wants to take towards our culture. It's de describing the type of posture that our church wants to take towards the world. And throughout history, if you kind of watch what the church has done throughout history, there's been different times and in different ways where the church has taken on various postures towards the world some of those postures are better than others. Some of them are far worse than others. So let me just give you a couple of them that are really common. One of the things that we see is sometimes churches take on the posture of being against the city. They're against the city. And this often happens in times of social or moral decline or in times of cultural opposition or pushback from the city where we start to feel as the people of God that we are less and less welcomed in the public square. And sometimes what can happen to the church is they take on a posture of being against the city where they have an antagonistic approach or they have an angry approach or a retreat from the city where they build walls and isolate themselves from the city or from the world, church against the city. Then at other times in history, you see churches who are of the city. And, and that's what happens when over time the church tries to reach the city but by trying to reach the city and love the city, sometimes they forget that the city is evangelizing them too. The world is evangelizing us. And so over time, what can happen is in an effort to, you know, really be evangelistic towards the world, we end up getting turned into the world. And the value systems, the loves, the desires, the, the passions, the vision of the good life that the world has slowly but surely infiltrates the church and then you can't even tell the difference between who the people of God are anymore and who the church is, or who the, who the city is anymore. 
The, the final posture, and there's others that we could explore, but the final one is what we're fighting for, which is to be a church that's for the city. What that means is that we want to be a church that maintains our unique identity as the people of God, that we don't want to lose who God has made us to be. We want to be faithful to Jesus above all else and also do that without retreating from the world. We want to be faithful to Jesus and have his values and the kingdom of God and its ethics shape our ethics so much so that we're just totally different from the world, but not departing, not hitting eject, not retreating, not building walls, but actually trying to figure out what it looks like as the unique people of God to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the city, to the world around us. So it means that everything about us, our money and our possessions and the way that we relate to marriage or singleness or sexuality, the way that we relate to gender, the way that we relate to uh, pursuing the good life, the way that we relate to raising children, all of it, everything about us is different, but it's different in a way that contradicts the city and blesses the city and actually is like salt and light to the city. Does that make sense? It's easy to say that, that that's our hope. We want to be a church for the city. It's another thing to try to figure out what on earth that looks like now. What does that mean? What does that look like in a culture like ours? Well, I already mentioned that this is the last Sunday of our series on the mission of not just Frontline Church, but as we've said, the mission of God's church throughout history. You could summarize it a lot of ways, but we've summarized it as multiplying gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness. And last week, we talked about the role that we have as Christians to push back darkness through sharing the good news of Jesus, that actually through proclaiming the gospel, that's one of the ways that we're pushing back darkness, that we are sent into the world to announce to people who are far from God that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, that Jesus has come for us, though we did not deserve it, that our King died for our sin, that he rose again on the third day, that he ascended into heaven where he reigns and rules over all right now, and that there is coming a day where King Jesus returns to this earth, and he will make all things new. He will wipe every tear from every eye. He will fix this broken world. We've got good news, and our call is to go into the world to proclaim that good news, right? But it's more than that. It's not less than that. It's not less than proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King. But also, we push back darkness not just through gospel proclamation, but also through kingdom demonstration. That's what we're talking about today. The way that we demonstrate the reality that Jesus is the King. That we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. We now find our ultimate identity as kingdom people. In this world, we have a foot in both word, worlds, as it were, one in the kingdom of God, one here in this very world. And part of our role now is not just to proclaim good news, but to live in light of that good news and to actually bring to bear the reality of God's kingdom on earth. That's our job, that's our role. So, how do we do it? Well, that's what we're talking about today. And I don't know of a better place to go for this specific type of, of, of question than Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 is where we're going to go. And I've got four words that I want to briefly unpack with you, four words that I want you to consider as we work through the text. Exile, sent, shalom, and resistance. When you read Jeremiah 29, this section, those are the four words that I want you to notice here. Exile, sent, 
shalom and resistance. So let's jump in. Verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. First thing I want you to see is exile. This is the place that we find ourselves in. Now, let me, let me give you some background here because we're parachuting into Jeremiah 29. In the 6th century B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, the most powerful empire on planet Earth at the time, King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem. He sacked the temple. He killed a bunch of people. He did violence to the area. And then what he did is he grabbed a lot of the people and through a few different waves, eventually all of God's people, and brought them from their homeland in Jerusalem to Babylon, to the empire. And he, he made them essentially as slaves. Now just imagine how disorienting this must be to live in Jerusalem as a Jewish person, to have customs and an identity and a religious culture and heritage that was far different than pagan Babylon. Babylon was not just the most powerful empire on the planet, but it was a profoundly evil empire. It was a broken empire. It was full of sexual immorality and evil and brokenness. And what King Nebuchadnezzar did was brilliant. He essentially grabbed the teenagers and he tried to erase the, 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 the most prominent young teenage boys. He tried to erase their Jewish identity entirely. So he took their Jewish names away and he gave them pagan names that represented different gods in Babylon. He took away their Jewish diet based on the Torah, and he gave them a diet that was similar to the, the upper echelon of pagan Babylon. He gave them literature that was Babylonian literature. He trained them in Babylonian culture and heritage, and essentially the whole idea was, I'm going to take the ethics of these people, the people of God, I'm going to erase them, and I'm going to replace them with our ethics, with Babylon's ethics. And so imagine trying to be a young boy or young girl growing up as the people of God, but you're not home. And everything about what's being hold out, held out to you day in and day out, the 24-7 the, the news cycle, if you will, of Babylon, is telling you something that's different than what God had been telling the people of God. Hey, this is exactly where we find ourselves today as the people of God. Here's what I mean. Since the establishment of the church in Acts 2, one of, the, one of the main themes that the New Testament will tease out again and again for what the church is in the world is that we are exiles now. That's our identity. They were exiles in Babylon. <clears throat> you and I are exiles on earth. This is how Peter, the apostle Peter, opens up his very first letter in the New Testament. He says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, I love this, elect exiles. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are an elect person. God has chosen you to belong to him. He pursued you. He's loved you. He died for you. He rose again for you. You are an elect exile. You belong to God, but you also sort of belong to the world too. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness. You're elect. You belong to Jesus. But you, you still live here. This is your home. And that is a profoundly disorienting thing if you stop to think about it long enough. Because the message, like Babylon to these young teenage boys, the message of digital Babylon, if you will, the culture that we live in, is constantly saying one thing 
And the word of God is constantly saying something else about every issue. I mean, just go down the list, money and possessions. The world says you find your life in that. It's, it's what you work hard for you, so you can grow up and be wealthy and do whatever you want to do. And, you, you, you know, you find your life in the abundance of riches and possessions and buying things. And, and, then, and then Jesus says, actually, it's more blessed to give than receive. You take what the world says about sex and sexuality. Hey, you do you. As long as you're not hurting anybody, it's free game. You can be whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. The world is your canvas to kind of express your unique identity to the world. And then, and then yet Jesus is like, no, that's, there's actually restrictions and limitations. Like a, like a fire is restricted in a fireplace, and that's, that restriction makes it beautiful and good. God has restricted certain things about sex and sexuality, not because he's anti-pleasure and joy, but because he's good, and he doesn't want a fire burning in the living room. And you go down the list of things, and what you realize is that digital Babylon says this, and the culture that we live in says this, we are elect exiles. That's who we are. That's our identity. Just like these people in Jeremiah 29, we find ourselves in a similar position. Uh, I, I've talked about this before, but I think it's a helpful analogy. I want to show you a picture of the, the, most, the, the most clashing division our culture has ever had. What color is this dress? Uh, how many of you see yellow and white? Raise your hand. Look around the room. How many of you see black and blue? Raise your hand. I, those colors are not alike. And half of you are completely insane. That's just the reality. Half of you are insane. It's clearly yellow and white. I mean, it's just very clearly. I don't, I've never not seen yellow and white. It's so obvious, right? And yet I remember this coming out, and it was like, how, how is that a thing? How do people see blue and black? And those of you that see blue and black are like, how do you see yellow and white when you look at this dress? It's baffling, isn't it? My, my point that I'm trying to make is that when Jesus saved us, it's like he gave us an entirely different lens to see everything through, and now we see the color of the dress one way, and the world sees the color of the dress a totally different way. We just see it different, man. We just see it, and it's not because we're better than, it's not, it's just we see it different because God has done a work in us. Does that make sense? We are elect exiles, and you go down the list of things, topics, discussions that our culture wants to have, we just see things differently now. And I think that what we have to grapple with is how do we live in a place that's constantly telling us one way and God is constantly telling us another way? That's really challenging. That leads me to the second thing I want you to see. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Second thing I want you to notice here is this word sent. And this is, this is our deeper reality. There's a paradox if you read Jeremiah 29, because the very first verse of Jeremiah 29 says that Nebuchadnezzar took people into exile. This was his doing. And yet this text here says, thus says the Lord, I've sent you into exile. So which is it? Is it Nebuchadnezzar's fault that we're in Babylon, or is it God's fault that we're in Babylon? Yes. Yes. That, that, is, that is what it is. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who did this. He's the one who sacked Jerusalem. Both scripture and history will show that he's the one who took Jewish people and took them to a foreign land. And yet behind all of that, behind the, the, the deeper reality behind all of that, is that it was actually God who sent his people into the heart of Babylon. 
into the empire, into the belly of the beast, the worst place on planet earth if you're trying to live as a faithful Christian, and yet God sent his people there to Babylon. This is profound. Friends, we are elect exiles, but we are elect exiles on purpose. This is why we are still here. This is why when we baptize people, by the way, we don't, we don't hold them under the water for five minutes. And like, tell Jesus we said, hey. It, it's like, you know, just we'll send you on your way now. You're, you, you no longer need to be here. No. But part of that, we don't do that because that's murder. But part of that is because there's actually a purpose that you have as the people of God to live here as the unique people of God. That's why you're here. You've been sent into the world. Don't believe me? Let me quote Jesus because it's hard to argue with Jesus if you're a Christian. John 17, his last prayer right before dying on a cross, he says, he's praying to the Father and listen in on this prayer. He says, but now I'm coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that they, his disciples, may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And notice what's happened. And the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of this world. Just as I am not of this world, they see the dress a different color. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but what does he pray for? That, I, that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And the very first thing that Jesus says to his disciples after the resurrection, one of the very first conversations he has with them in John 20, 21, he says this, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Friends, we don't get the freedom to hide out from culture. We don't get the freedom to keep our Christian beliefs to ourselves. We don't get the freedom to notice brokenness in the world and not do anything about it. We don't get the, the, the benefit of just living private faith lives and not actually interacting with that, the implications of that in the world. We don't get to do that because just as God the Father sent God the Son to planet Earth on a mission, God the Son has now sent God's people into the world, into the earth on a mission. You and I are sent ones into the world. And that begs the question, sent to do what? Well, notice what he goes on to say. We're in enemy-occupied territory, as it were. What are we called to do? Well, look at what he says in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Man, I wish I could preach like five sermons on this one text. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The third thing I want you to see is shalom, which is why we are here. Now, I'll unpack that word in just a minute, but suffice it to say that the people of God at this time in history were hearing two very different messages constantly, two very different messages. The first message was coming from Babylon itself, and it was essentially saying, be of the city, look like us, talk like us, live like us, do marriage like we do, 
do singleness like we do, do sex and sexuality like we do, live the way we live, have our ethics be your your ethics, be just like Babylonians. In fact, if we could wipe away your Jewish heritage and make you Babylonians, all the better. This was the first message coming from Babylon. The second message was actually coming from some false prophets. And if you read the rest of Jeremiah 29, this is what God goes on to speak to in the rest of the passage. What was happening with these false prophets is that they were saying, no, 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 be against the city. Be against the city. God doesn't really want us here. It's purely accidental that we're here. He's going to get us out of here really quickly. So don't even bother making this home. This is not home. He's going to take us back home real quick. So be against the city. Be opposed to it. Don't don't do anything to make this a permanent place. And especially don't live in a way that would be a blessing to the city. And yet notice what God says with these two opposing voices. Be of the city. Be against the city. God shows up and says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, that word welfare is flimsy. That word welfare makes us think of a government system, right, where there's aid available to people who are in need. And so when we think of it and read that word welfare here in this text, that's sort of the image that's conjured up in our heads. That's not what the word is. The word in Hebrew is the word shalom, And the word shalom means peace, but not the type of peace that we tend to think of. Peace in our culture is sort of a fragile, flimsy, shallow word too. But the word shalom is anything but fragile and hollow and shallow. The word shalom is describing a type of peace where everything is as it's supposed to be underneath the reign and rule of God. Shalom is what happens when people are fully submitted to God. Shalom is what happens when people are underneath his authority and his reign and his rule and his ways are happening in the world. That's what shalom is. Tim Keller defines it like this. Shalom means complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all relationships are right and perfect and filled with joy. Friends, this is what you and I are sent into the world to do, to fight for, to seek shalom in the world. This is why we are here. So here's what I want you to start to think about. What does it look like to to notice darkness in the world, to notice darkness in your workplace, to notice darkness in your neighborhood, to notice darkness with people who are in need in our city, to notice brokenness and what's off and what's dysfunctional, And what does it look like as the people of God to push back that darkness, to see the shalom of God brought to those places? This is why, as a church, we're passionate about sharing our faith, telling our our story of how Jesus saved us and proclaiming the good news of what God has done for us in Christ to redeem us and our world. We're passionate about that, but we're also passionate about loving the poor. We're also passionate about caring for those who are truly in need. We're also passionate about seeing everything that's wrong made right in our world. This is why, 
as community groups, we make funds, church funds available in the form of what's called a pushback darkness grant so that you and your community group can apply for money from the church. The church will give you money so that as you spot brokenness and dysfunction in the world, you can meet those needs. And, and by the way, pushback darkness grants are not primarily meant to like, oh, so-and-so in my group has needs and so I need to fill this grant out so that they can get help. That We should do that collectively as the people of God. We should take care of one another and serve one another. But this is so that you can spot the brokenness in the city, in the world, in your neighborhood, and you can put your hand on it and actually say, what would it look like if Jesus were to bring the kingdom of God to this? Well, let's do that. Let's do that. This is why, friends, if you're at our members meeting, and you were at our members meeting if you're a member and if you were there, uh, lots of big ifs, but if you're at our members meeting, we talked about, one of the things I shared was that our team is in the process of trying to figure out how we could start a bus ministry. And I'm going to talk about this in, in the near future. I'm so excited. But man, there's an apartment complex that feeds into Houchin Elementary. And we just latched on to Houchin Elementary as like, that's the school that we want to bring the shalom of God to. And there's a group of kids from Houchin that live at a Section 8 apartment complex, Nottingham Square. And this is going to be a summer for us where we go gangbusters on Nottingham Square. We are going to love that neighborhood complex like crazy. We're going to meet needs. We're going to serve kids. And the hope is that we can actually start to raise funds to buy a bus as a church so that kids that can't get to church or have parents that won't take them to church, we're going to, we're going to do the old school thing. Like, hey, we'll pick you up and take you to church. It'll be safe. It'll be fun. It'll be intentional. It'll be a chance for kids to come to know Jesus. There's a, there's a woman in our church today who came to faith in Jesus through a bus ministry that I grew up inside of years and years ago. We're bringing it back. This is, this is what we're trying to fight for is like, hey, yeah, you can applaud that. That's this is, a, this, is a fun, this is a fun moment for us to say, what would it look like to get off our heels and actually push back darkness? You ever notice when Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, that gates are not uh, weapons that you fight with? What are gates? They're, they're not advancement tools. Gates are defensive measures so that when someone is, a, is on the offensive, you have a gate to stop them. Friends, Hell has gates, and we as the people of God are actually meant to be on the offensive, pushing back the darkness of hell. And, and the good news is Jesus already let the cat out of the bag. The gates of hell won't prevail. We know the end of the story, man. The end of the story is Jesus wins. So let's get after it. This is why we are here. And that leads me to the last thing I want you to see. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and I love this line, notice, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The fourth and final thing I want you to see is this call toward resistance. And this is living as the unique people of God in the world. It says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. And I think what we do with that verse is we turn it into like a hobby lobby, like, coffee mug or, you know, some weird art that we put over our bathroom, pray to the Lord on its behalf. And we turn it into this, like, really cheesy, simple thing to do. But I want you to remember, maybe you don't, maybe you don't know this, I want, I want to remind you, though, that praying in Babylon was an act of resistance. Praying in Babylon was dangerous. Here's what I mean. Many people have forgotten that the prophet Jeremiah is writing Jeremiah 29 at the exact same moment that Daniel and his three friends are also in Babylon. 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as their pagan names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what you see if you read the book of Daniel, which is written at the exact same time as Jeremiah 29, what you realize is that these Daniel and his three friends are doing everything that we're describing here. They have made their home in Babylon. They are a part of the upper echelon of leadership. They are uh, uh, really close to the king and the, the, the leaders of this empire. They are actively seeking the welfare of the city and the blessing of the city. And the story of Daniel is really fascinating to read how they do that. And in the middle of that, they face threat after threat after threat where they could just seek the welfare of the city, but then not also be the faithful people of God who had to resist the empire at times. And yet here's what's fascinating. Over and over and over, you're going to see that for them to truly be God's people meant that they had to stand up and speak truth to power, even at the threat of their own lives. Here's an example in Daniel 1 verse 8. He's commanded by Nebuchadnezzar to eat certain food, and yet we read this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. What would it look like for you as a Christian to resolve to be faithful to Jesus no matter what? Just resolve. I won't do this. I won't act that way. I won't say that. I won't believe that. I resolve to be God's people here. When Daniel's three friends were commanded to bow down to a golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built, and he basically said, if you fail to do this, I will throw you into the fiery furnace. We read this in chapter 3. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Profound defiance. We will not And then you know the story. They get thrown into the fiery furnace. They don't die, but they were willing to. And then we read this when King Darius passed a law that forbid anyone to pray to anybody except for him. I love this. In chapter 6, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed by King Darius, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, and this is maybe one of the most important lines, as he had done previously. Do you notice? Daniel's not going, oh, I can't pray? Well, screw that. I'm going to pray anyway, by golly. I'm a, I'm, you know, he doesn't do that. He goes, I've been praying this whole time. I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing. I'm going to, defile, I'm, I'm going to def, uh, stand in defiance of what King Darius has said and continue to be faithful to Jesus. Friends, This is necessary for us as a church. We have to be a church that is both in the city pushing back the darkness and is also at many times and in many ways standing up and resisting culture, defying culture, speaking against culture, right? We live in a moment where demonstrating the kingdom of God will look like resistance in our culture's understanding of the good life, of marriage and singleness, the gift and role of children, sex ethics, gender, money and possessions, what our world even defines as right and what our world defines as wrong. Have you noticed that what C.S. Lewis warned us about in his famous work, um, what is his famous work? I forgot it, I wrote it down. (laughs) The Abolition of Man. 
what, he, what he wrote about in The Abolition of Man has happened, where now what our world says is right is actually what God says is wrong, and what our world says is wrong is what God has actually said is right. Like, we've literally flipped everything upside down. And now to be a Christian is not just like, oh, you're the moral people. No, actually, now to be a Christian, you're the immoral people in the world. What does it look like to stand up and resist and be defiant, full of love and full of grace? That's our call. Karl Barth says this, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. That's our call. So we're exiles, we're sent to bring the shalom of God and at times and in many ways resist. Hey, everything I just said, Jesus has done before us. Jesus was an exile, wasn't he? God on this earth, walking around, not even recognized by the Pharisees and religious leaders of his day, even his own family didn't recognize him. He, he was an exile. He was sent by the Father on a mission to live for us, to die for us, to rise again. And what I love about it is when Jesus came, he didn't just hide out for 33 years and then die on a cross in a backyard somewhere secretly and then ascend to heaven and be like, my job's done. No, he spent three years of his public ministry not just proclaiming truth, but then demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of God. He came to people who are sick and he healed them. He came to people who are dead and he gave them life. He came to the poor and he served them. He came to those who are broken in their bodies and broken because of demonization, and he brought the shalom of Jesus to real people in real places. Everywhere where Jesus went, darkness was getting pushed back, and Jesus resisted, man. He stood before Pilate, the, the, the guy who literally could let him go or not, and he spoke truth to power and resisted Pilate, ultimately to the point of even going to a cross. And I love what Romans says in verse, chapter 5, verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't just love us, he demonstrated his love. So friends, as we are called to do what Jesus did, let's not forget that he's the one who did it first, and he's the one who did it for us. Would you stand with me?